1: Would they kick me out? Would they cut me off? What would happen to me? I just felt I needed to do this. This was not an option. I couldn't keep on living the way I was.
2: Welcome to another episode of On The Edge with Andrew Gold. They just keep coming, don't they? Mondays and Thursdays, the Saturday ones are out for patrons, of course, patreon.com slash Gold. but your Monday and Thursday ones, I'm trying to keep them diverse, interesting. I'm going to get a new guest booker, hopefully soon, and I think we're going to start getting some different kinds of guests and topics, hopefully, as things go on. Today, I've got Zalman Newfield, writer of Degrees of Separation, Identity Formation While Leaving... Ultra Orthodox Judaism. Um, Zalman is a fascinating person who grew up inside Hasidic Judaism. I- I've done some episodes before, as you guys know, with uh, Julia Hart and Javi Weisberger, where they told about their, their horrific times growing up in uh, Orthodox Judaism, in-, in Haredi Judaism, or, or whatever it- the specific thing might be called. And I've also had some, you know, uh, Frieda Weisel came on and S- Sarah Brown, who had more mixed. Uh, ideas about about growing up in what I would classify an extreme authoritarian sect. But I think what Zalman might call a tight-knit community, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but we have a great chat about it. He left it at the end of the day. Um, at the end of the day. At the end of his... Well time in the jewish community he left it he's still very much in the jewish community i should say just not in the ultra orthodox part of it so we're going to talk today or we did talk about uh his his upbringing how it was a little bit different why he left Uh, And what it's like for people on the outside when you don't have education and things like things like that, and you have to try and make your way in the world. Get hold of his book. Get get it. Just go to his website. Actually, it's all there. That just type Zalman Z A L M A N Newfield, and you will find you know his book. There's a podcast he did as part of the New Books Network as well. All very interesting stuff. Big episodes coming up as always. Lots of cults and religions and different things. And I'm going to try and vary, as I say, as it as it goes along. But now, you're on the edge of the Hasidic Jewish community with Salman Newfield. Yeah. 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 Salman, wie geht's? Könnten wir auf Deutsch sprechen? A A, 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 a,
1: a, a drop. Uh, all yeah. is well. It is so great to be here with you. Thank you for having me.
2: Oh, uh, you're very, very welcome. I always try to do a bit of, because I learned German, I thought, what was the point? And then I started interviewing people who grew up in Hasidic communities, and they can understand me. And the, it's the only time I've ever been able to use it. So I just wanted to try it. Yes.
1: Well, that. I find my, my Yiddish comes in very handy when I watch uh, uh, um, German movies and TV shows. So I can get, I don't know, 40, 50% of, you know, Nazi films or whatever. Um, which I think is a great use of, you know, 20 or 15 years of uh, yeshiva training.
2: That's actually a great point, though, because I grew up, obviously, a secular Jew myself, but it has particular meaning for anybody Jewish, and I suppose anyone who's not Jewish, watching Nazi films. um, And then you go and learn German or Yiddish or whatever it might be, and then you can actually understand when they're sort of, Barking in that, and I'm not suggesting all Germans bark. I just mean that Hitler, in particular, did. And you actually understand the words. It's very scary. What it changes how you watch those films, I guess.
1: It, it does. I mean, I have to say, I have watched a bunch of uh, clips of Hitler speaking, and I have a very hard time understanding him. In part because yeah, he's too. speaking very fast, and um, you know, it's it, it's it's you know, a little hard to get into. It. But but I I I do truly enjoy uh, watching any kind of foreign film. Um, whether you know, it's French or um, um, uh, Spanish or whatever, and I'm able to find a couple of words that I am pretty sure I know what they mean. And there's something um, kind of exciting about that. And I think in some ways it relates to what we're talking about today, which is, uh, at least in part, about trying to understand understand other people and making connections with people who seem very different from ourselves. And I think that, for me, that's one of the thrills of watching foreign films because even though it's a foreign language and it may be a different historical period and people living very, or representing people who live very different lives, we could find some mutuality in the few words that I'm able to decipher and figure out. So that's a, a kind of thrill. that I think it relates to this broader theme about trying to make connections and see the humanity in other people, even if they're living or came from very different lifestyles and what we're used to.
2: Did you grow up um, primarily speaking Yiddish? And, and I, I ask that also because I hope you don't mind me saying you have a very slight accent that a lot of people who grew <laughs> up in, in those yeah in those communities. But you I mean, you grew up in New York, right? And so, what's what's going on there?
1: Yeah. Well, so just about the accent, it's funny because right. So I grew up uh, in the ultra orthodox Jewish community known as the Lubavitch Hasidic community, which is headquartered in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, and. Uh, but then I spent years um, initially in yeshiva. I went to yeshiva in, in Chicago for two years, in Miami, uh, South Beach of all places, for two years. I lived in Argentina for a year. I lived in Singapore for a year. So I'd done a bunch of traveling while still being part of the ultra-orthodox community. And so I think my accent you know, shifted somewhat. Um, but still, people would meet me today and say, hey, you know, it sounds like you have some kind of an accent. And I'd always play dumb. I'm like, me, really? like, well, where are you from? <laughs> I'm like, well, Idaho. <laughs> and they never buy it. It's very upsetting. Uh, so, so yes, <laughs> there is, I'm told, uh, a slight kind of accent or sing song, uh, that people associate with Yiddish, people associate with yeshiva culture, ultra-Orthodox, uh, kind of schooling system and the way that people speak amongst themselves and the way that they study text together, um, And in terms of the languages that were spoken, so at home, I always spoke English. Uh, Both of my parents are bali tshuva. That's sort of like uh, uh, colloquially referred to as born-again Jews, but they're not not really accurate. They were Jewish all along, but they were sort of secular, maybe somewhat like your background, and then they joined the ultra-Orthodox community as adults. Um, So they really only knew English, and that's the language that we spoke uh, at home. In yeshiva in school, the language of instruction was Yiddish. So I ended up becoming very fluent in Yiddish. Uh, but even in school and certainly outside of school, amongst my friends, we tended to speak in English, but with what they sometimes called Yinglish. So it's English with a bunch of Yiddish kind of thrown in for flavor.
2: Okay, like Larry David and Woody Allen.
1: Well, maybe more Yiddish than that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I mean, Even I, in my sort of secular upbringing, we, I yeah, had quite a few Yiddish words, particularly from grandparents, was sort of floating around. Um, there, are, there are people, aren't there, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, who grew up, grow up in communities in New York who don't necessarily learn English. Is that right? Particularly the boys I've heard. Like the girls often do learn it, but boys don't.
1: You're looking at someone like that right now. So I, even though I spoke English at home and and all my friends in Brooklyn knew English, but we didn't learn any second, what they called secular studies, including the lang- learning the English language, ABCs, but also learning mathematics, uh, forget about social science or the physical sciences. We didn't learn any of that whatsoever, ever. <laughs> and people have a very hard time kind of hearing that and believing it. Um, maybe especially when they, when they see me and they talk to me and, I seem, you know, I'm able to speak English and seem to know a few things. uh, And they say, well, that can't really be true. Like you must have learned English, but at a kind of subpar level, uh, you know, minimal English. And I, I, I constantly try to come back to this. Well, no, we literally did not learn the ABCs. We did not learn two plus two is four. We didn't learn any of that ever from, you know, kindergarten through sort of the college or post-college early twenties. It was never taught in um, any of the schools that I went to. My sisters, as you were, um, as you were uh, implying, they did get a, se- a, a secular education. So their school system was kind of like split. So part of the day they would learn religious studies and then part of the day they would learn secular studies. Uh, but the boys in the schools that I attended, there are other ultra-Orthodox schools where they do it somewhat differently, where even the boys get a sort of modicum of secular education, uh, quite uh, uh, insubstantial, but still something. Uh, but for the schools that I attended, the boys did not, and they're they're gender segregated schools. So the schools that I went to were all boys. Um, we did not get any secular education whatsoever.
2: Mine was also uh, gender segregated. And I, I'm always happy for that because I just think I would not have concentrated <laughs> at school. Like there's just, you know, my wife says to me like, that must be weird though. It was just boys everywhere, boys, boys, boys. And I just thought like, I, if I had a pimple, you know, spot on my face, like that was the worst thing ever. <laughs> if there were women, girls, I should say as well, no way, I would not have enjoyed. Tell me though, why, why, why would, why is it that the girls... Get a different, like a more secular education than the boys.
1: Right, right. So sometimes people are kind of tripped up by this because they assume that the ultra orthodox community, as a, a kind of very socially conservative community, they just kind of assume that whatever is quote unquote good would be, uh, di- uh you know, uh, dished on to the boys, and whatever was you know, not so good would go to the girls. So how could it end up that the girls actually got a secular education and the boys didn't? And the answer uh, to this little riddle is that. From the perspective of ultra-Orthodox Judaism, uh, they tend to assume, so there's a, there's a uh, kind of religious commandment to study Torah, uh, to study you know, religious texts. Um, but they, they tend to assume that that commandment is only really binding, or more binding, on boys and men for, uh, rather than on girls and women. And therefore, they feel that for boys to study secular you know, studies would detract from the time and the concentration on religious studies, and that would be a kind of um, religious violation. But for girls who don't have a religious obligation to study Torah at all, uh, it's no problem. In theory, they could just spend all their time, you know, sewing or something. Uh, the the religious education is just, uh, um, you know, sort of a supplemental thing, not actually requirement. And therefore, since they're not really required to study Torah, it's okay for them to take a few hours of their day and study secular studies. You know, why not no great harm, but for the boys who are, uh, viewed as the kind of, um, you know, the, the primary, uh, concern focus of religious instruction in the community, they feel it would be, uh, spiritually detrimental sort of to their soul if they were contaminated with this kind of outside secular knowledge. And again, it would detract from the time and effort they were able to apply to their religious study.
2: Mm, I felt that way sometimes at school, like having to learn all this stuff. I was like, oh, for God's sake, you know, for very different reasons, of course. But, you know, like, I do think more and more, and I know I'm, I'm sounding like I'm in my mid-30s, and I'm already like, like grouchy old man, like, oh, why do they teach us that stuff? But I, I do think like, wow, wouldn't it have been great instead of like geography and history to have had like, like taxes or how to put your curtains up in a house? right? Because I'm in a house, how do I put the curtains up? Who do I talk to? Who's, you know, and then otherwise, you just don't you just have light coming in. And that's your life. So I was annoyed by that. But obviously, school is important. And so those girls, are they then supposed to learn to then go on and get jobs and careers and things?
1: Right? So that's changed a, a, a bunch in the past several decades. So you know, for 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 some time, you know, the men were the ones who were going out and getting jobs uh, and the women were uh, kind of staying home and um, having babies, many babies, and, you know, uh, raising those those babies. Uh, and that still happened. But uh, in addition to that, in part because the there's been a sort of renewed focus on, uh, um, you know, Talmud study and religious study among the men. So again, historically, uh, meaning, in, let's just say in the 1800s early 1900s in eastern europe where the hasidic ultra-orthodox communities you know originate um uh you know most people were poor and they they couldn't sit they didn't have the luxury of sitting in a yeshiva in a religious institution for years and years on end just studying religious texts they needed to go out and work and and they many of them most of them did some kind of manual labor or some you know um small shopkeepers or whatever innkeepers Uh, you know, things like that. Um, so, but in America after World War II, um, as the economic situation for these ultra Orthodox communities changed, they had suddenly the luxury, the ability to send their sons to yeshiva for years, uh, and financially support them while they were studying Talmud and other religious texts. Um, so with these shifts, these economic shifts in the community, uh, the norms um, in terms of the gender division of labor has changed. So now, often, yes, these uh, uh, girls who study secular studies, some of them get kind of uh, 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 secular high school diplomas, and then uh, have some skills to be able to go and join the outside workforce, and they often do. And then sometimes they're kind of supplementing the income of their husbands who are also, you know, out working. Um, but then there are uh, some communities where the at least some of the men end up kind of committing themselves to Torah study as a long term project. Even after they're married, they'll spend you know hours in a study hall, um, you know, studying the Talmud, and then it's the women who are actually uh, bringing in
2: income. They're the breadwinners. Then that's really interesting. Yeah, it's not. How, I I know that that is not. I guess most people are listening, because I'm surprised, but to hear that, so I know that people will be listening, going, "Oh, wow!" You know, that's not what you expect at all. Obviously, I do. I do a lot of interviews with other kinds of very tight knit communities or extreme authoritarian sects. One might call some of these like Jehovah's Witnesses and things like that. And I think that might be. Well, people will let me know, I suppose, if I'm wrong, very angrily. But I don't think that you'd <laughs> expect the woman to be to be out um, being the breadwinner in those places.
1: I, I should just mention that it really it is important. To to acknowledge the kind of um, local specificity. So, when we talk about the ultra Orthodox community, we're really talking about a lot of different communities. And of course, or not of course, but often from the outside, you know, people might say, well, they all look alike. You know, how could you tell them apart? But there are real differences in terms of their dress uh, and even more so in terms of their thinking or practices, including something like this about, you know, should the women work outside of the home? Are they the primary breadwinner? They, they, you know, sort of supplementing the income that the, their spouse is bringing in. Um, you know, so it, again, I would I, I just want to caution, uh, as to, to be careful about exactly which communities we're talking about, because there's, there's a lot of variation within this. Population.
2: That is interesting, and it's something I yeah I'm going to ask you about in a minute as well because there's just so many words that I need to know what a lot of them mean and who they're referring to. But in general, because we're talking about the money, obviously money is a very touchy issue. We're both Jewish people, so I suppose we can talk about it. But of course, with regards to a lot of stereotypes that are that are very harmful and untrue. But I just want to ask about the ultra orthodox community in general. I mean, how how do they bring in money? How do how do they manage aside from women sometimes having to join the workforce to have families that ha- have acquired wealth and what is what going on there
1: right so as you could imagine there really is a uh, uh, um you know a lot of variation so there are some ultra sex jews who are very wealthy uh often from business um you know where essentially high school diploma was not required uh even kind of fluency in english may not be required um in america let's say and so you know there there's people who are really very wealthy and they tend to be the ones that uh, get a lot of attention and are uh, kind of feed certain stereotypes about Jews and money. Uh, but the reality is that most of the people in the ultra-orthodox community are not wealthy and many of them are are quite, um, uh, um, you know, really, um, struggling financially in part, at least because of what we're talking about. If you, um, you know, don't have a high school diploma and you could barely stream together a sentence in English or, um, you know, have difficulty with basic math and things like that. Um, it could be very hard to make a living in the economic system that we live in. So, um, you know, there is, there's a wide uh, diversity of, 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 you know, economic statuses. And, um, and one thing that's interesting is if you go to ultra stock synagogue, you could often see that there's a real split within the synagogue. There's a few people who are, you know, millionaires and are sponsoring, you know, festivals and, and, you know, um, uh, uh um, providing meals for the whole community or whatever. And then there are people who are the recipients of internal um, community charities, you know, and they're praying together. Their kids go to the same schools, but, um, you know, they're, they're, they're dealing with very different economic realities.
2: A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? That's, that's something that is interesting to learn, actually, as well. And I, I hope people do understand that, that it's just the sort of the, the very few who are very wealthy and that spreads this kind of stereotype. Um, and I, but even I, I suppose, fell for it to an extent because I just thought, well, what are they, if they're religious all the time and they're being religious, they must just have loads of money, these people. You know, I had never, before speaking to you and obviously Frida Wiesel and Julia Hart, I don't think I'd ever spoken to somebody who'd been in the Haredi or the Hasidic community, uh, such as the difference, you know, d- d- uh, people might assume that a lot of Jews like me might, but there, there isn't much knowledge, I suppose, uh, between us. And so I remember just being in, in Israel, and I was, think I, I was at, what do we call it, the Western Wall, is it? You're not supposed to call it the Wailing Wall um, anymore, I don't know. But I was there, and there were lots of people in what I imagined was Haredi dress or something, who were basically begging for for money. I think this was before Pesach or before one of the holidays, and the point is because they're not even allowed to work. I think that's what it's mad that that has to go on that way.
1: Well, well, they're not allowed to work. I don't know, or they're not able to. You know, for whatever reason, either you know, physical, emotional, psychological. You know, all kinds of things, or just inability to find a job. Again, many, you know, millions of people around the world struggle to to make a living, and you know, so in that sense, uh, many people in the Hasidic or ultra orthodox community. Are really not that different from other people in other walks of life who struggle to to, to make a living, to find the job, to keep the job, to you know make enough money to pay the bills. I mean, all these kind of basic things. I should mention that um, uh, that one thing about the ultra effects community because it's very tight knit and there is a lot of kind of solidarity within the community itself. So some of the economic hardships that people suffer are, are alleviated at least to an extent, by internal communal charity. So you mentioned about people collecting funds before Passover or major Jewish holidays in order to pay for basic staples for those holidays. Um, um, This is actually a long uh, Jewish practice of giving money to uh, people who are struggling uh, before Passover in particular, because, you know, Passover can be very expensive, especially if you have a big family and you have to buy matzah and wine and all the things that you need for the seders for the, you know, to celebrate the holiday. So there are charities that provide that kind of support. Um, there's also special funds, um, organizations that provide support when people get married, weddings are very expensive and you have large families. That means many weddings. Um, and there are, uh, uh, charities that provide gowns for, for brides. There's charities that provide, uh, um, uh, musicians, photographers, uh, Uh, caterers for the occasion. So that definitely helps somewhat if people are thinking, well, if people are so poor, how do they keep on having children? How do they keep on uh, sustaining them? Definitely the internal uh, community charities
2: do help alleviate some of that, that burden. I see. And so is that communal side that, I mean, you left that community and I'm always thinking about how interesting that is. That sort of the, you're in a constant struggle between: Do you want this community that will always help each other out in that way, but then you sacrifice some levels of individualism? How did you find it as a as a child? Like, do you do you miss parts of that community side?
1: Sure, absolutely. I mean, the you know uh, some people who leave again. There's a lot of stereotypes um, about the ultra reflex community, and also about the people who leave them, um, and. You know what? One of the the stereotypes is that well, anyone who leaves these kinds of communities, they must have had a terrible childhood, and they're just full of trauma, and they hate their parents. Their parents hate them. No one talks to each other. Uh, of course, they left these you know horrible places, whatever. And that was not my experience at all. I, uh, on the whole, I think I had a very uh, wonderful childhood. My parents loved me. I loved them. Uh, I had many friends in the community. Um, so. You know, there was a lot of positive experiences in my own upbringing. And, um, and I think also, um, you know, so it's just, it, it, you know, uh, the idea that everything that happens in the ultra orthodox community, if you leave, that means that you think that everything that happens in ultra orthodox community is bad and everything that happened outside the ultra orthodox community is good. And I certainly don't buy into that kind of dichotomy, that kind of lit view of the world. You know, I think there's a lot of good things that are happening in the ultra earth community, one of which is a kind of solidarity, not just financial, but people often are very close and often sort of closer than, um, the, some of the relationships you find in the outside sort of secular society, you know, because people know each other from, from birth, from very young age, they, uh, have a lot of, uh, interests in common religious beliefs, worldviews, and so on. So it's not surprising that in these kinds of tight-knit communities, people feel a real sense of kinship, a real sense of affection and love for each other. Um, and, and so there's a lot of that, and I think that that's wonderful. And, and yes, do I miss that? Sure. Uh, I mean, I have a lot of wonderful friends, uh, um, you know, in the outside world, and, and I'm very grateful for that. That's, you know, fantastic. Um, but there is a, a particular kind of warmth That I experienced, anyway, growing up in the Lubavitch-Casitic community, and there's certainly a part of that that I miss, and I feel nostalgic. Obviously, there were things about the community that I disagreed with, and I ultimately felt like I couldn't continue living there, so I, I left it. But that doesn't mean that I don't have a very warm attachment towards that community
2: yeah I think that's so hard to understand I'm glad you said it I think it's really hard to to understand just how how complicated and blurred these things are and you're sort of on you're sacrificing some things to be part of one thing and you're sacrificing other things to be part of another it's why I try to I try to interview people with disparate views obviously there was Julia Hart and Javi Weisberger who have a very negative view of uh, the whole Haredi community and I've done interviews with them but then there was Frida Weisel of course and Sarah Brown who I think uh who's still in it but but Frida's not who have quite positive memories. One of the things Frida was was telling me that sounded really lovely uh, was the sort of storytelling that happens, the oral tradition, uh, how people sit around and tell each other stories. And it's so exciting as a child because you don't have TV and you're sitting there and you get to actually listen and use your imagination in a way that most of us would love that our children or friends or ourselves would be able to do. We're sat looking at our phones and our gadgets and things. So that is something that I think, you know, I'm a very, I like the individualism. So I don't, I don't want to be part of something like that. And I gather that you do too, because you left, but it is something it is something that we miss. What, what about on the other side? What were some of the things that that you found growing up that you, maybe you were a little bit different to your friends that you didn't like about the community?
1: Right. So, so uh, again, I I I want to stress that like often, um, you know, there's there's an assumption that when people leave, you know, that they went through this very logical process, you know, uh, and that you know the re- that there's this kind of like a checklist. Well, here are the three reasons the top three reasons why I left the community. And it's interesting that even the people what um um so I, I should mention that I'm a a professor of sociology and my dissertation in my first book was about people who leave the ultra Orthodox community. Um and so so I study, you know, this population professionally and I as I write in my book Degrees of Separation, um, you know, the often um People who are leaving the community, or sometimes anyway, people who are leaving the community, they themselves present this exit process, this process of leaving their uh, ultra-orthodox community, you know, as a kind of highly rational process, that they did it because of these intellectual reasons. And, you know, they read these books. They read uh, uh, Richard Dawkins, is a very popular uh, author among some people um, who leave the ultra-orthodox community. Uh, and other uh members of what what sometimes called the new atheist uh you know Christopher Hitchens and so on. um you know, they read Hitchens, they read Dawkins, they realized that you know the Bible is wrong or whatever, and therefore they left. you know, and I argue my book and and I think in my own experience, this is the case. you know, yes, I did read those books, and I found them very interesting, uh you know, and there, I read many other books uh that that I also. Uh, found interesting about Bi- the Bible, about biblical criticism and so on, you know, but I, I, I think it's, it's inaccurate to say that, you know, that's the reason why I left. I think the, the, the process of leaving um, a community that you grew up in your whole life, um, uh, um, leaving the only existence that you know about um, is a very, very complex process. There's definitely an emotional, uh, intellectual side, but there's also an emotional side, there's a social side, There's all these things, and even those categories are not neatly differentiated. They're all intertwined. So it's very hard to say exactly, you know, why I left, but I could say that the issue of secular education that we're talking about is very close to my heart. Um, not surprising for someone who became a professor, (laughs) but, uh, but definitely, um, you know, from a young age, I started to realize that there are other people who, who even in my community who knew English, who were able to read, you know, English, and I wasn't, I wasn't taught the ABCs, as I mentioned, um, and I started as a teenager, uh, with the help of an uncle who's not Orthodox, um, to kind of, uh, learn the ABCs, and, you know, we started off with, uh, like a, a, second grade, um, reading book, you know, the boy went to the store, you know, things like that, and, um, you know, very quickly, I kind of graduated from that and started to read, um, you know, more advanced books. And I just developed, discovered, I don't know, uh, a kind of passion for reading uh, English books and learning about the world. And I remember when I was in Yeshiva in my late teens, my early twenties, um, I remember thinking like there's so much out there in the world. There are so many different kinds of people who are living so, such different lives, different religions. I became very fascinated, particularly with Christianity. And like, what are all these Christians up to? What exactly do they believe about Jesus? You know, what's going on there? Um, and and the say, I remember reading a book about the KKK. I was like, well, what's with that? You know, what, what for these people? Do they really believe these things about Jews or black people or whatever? You know, and I just became fascinated with learning about other people, understanding other cultures, other societies. And and that passion just grew. And eventually I, I did something that was very forbidden, which was attend uh, college. Um, and that just kind of fed my passion. And I was connected to professors who were very excited that I was excited about what they were teaching and, and their classes. And, and, and I remember we were in one class at a, a classical philosophy course and we were required to read the symposium from Plato. And uh, he talks about the nature of true love and this whole thing. And, um, we're sitting there in the class and the professors trying to. Elicit some information from the students about their thoughts on, on play And a bunch of the students were basically like, who cares about play dope? You know, what, what, this is such weird stuff. It's so old, you know, who cares? And I just kept on thinking, how could people not be excited about play This is fantastic. This is so great. I mean, I read every word of the, of, of the symposium. I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And, and I think, you know, the truth is, that it's not a sort of a put down to any of my classmates to say this. Um It's just that for me, being in college was this kind of rebellious thing. And I only did it because I was so passionate and so committed to learning. Most of the, or many of the other students, they were there because that's what was required. That's what you do. You know, you go to high school, then you go to college. That's the step you do before you get a job, you know, or while you're working or whatever it is. So, um, you know, but for me, this was like, you know, it was just like a thrill to be in the classroom and to be able to talk about uh, uh, Shakespeare or talk about uh, uh, um, Freud or uh, talk about uh, Nietzsche or whatever. It was it was very, very exciting. Did you feel guilty? Uh, no, no. I think, um, you know, I felt guilty about um, eventually eating, you know, non-kosher food or something. But I, I, I don't think I ever felt guilty about reading secular books. I was very worried in yeshiva about getting caught with secular books. Uh, but that wasn't a guilty conscience. I was just trying to make sure I didn't get kicked out of the yeshiva. Uh, so when eventually, once I started to, to learn English and, and read, uh, books in English again, in my mid teens, uh, late teens, um, I eventually started to collect a lot of books in English and every yeshiva that I attended, I would bring my own private stash, my own library and I would hide it in the dormitory in strategic places so that if you know, the rabbis came snooping and they found one uh, collection of books, my other books would be safe. Um, And then eventually I got a reputation amongst some of my classmates that, you know, he had books, you know, and people would come to me and say, "Zalman, could I borrow some of your books, you know? And I I felt it was kind of like a drug dealer, you know, I was handling this illicit stuff. And at the same time, I felt like it was really important to make sure that I only dealt with people that I could trust that wouldn't turn me in, you know? So even though a bunch of people wanted to borrow my books, I'd only give them to people who I I felt would, you know, keep their mouth shut if they got caught, you know? So there were some people who were disappointed with my lending policy, but I, I felt like that was what was required to survive in that particular climate. Um, but thankfully, I was never caught. So I went through the entire Lubavitch educational system, but did a lot of reading on my own.
2: I love this idea of you as this like high school or university dealer, but of education and books. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, so what? I, I guess I, I just. You know what it is? It's like, I, I want to give like the positive sides as I did, you know, with Frida as well. But I, and I, I'm also thinking, you know, those people like Julia Hart, people like Javi Weisberger, those experiences they've had. I mean, what, what would you say to them? What do you think about that? I mean, Javi, for example, felt that I think because she was um, LGBT, she, she wasn't allowed to keep her children and things like that. Are those concerns for you about the community?
1: Oh, absolutely. And those are very real. I mean, I know Kavi; she's a wonderful, wonderful person, a wonderful uh, mother, uh, you know, and, and those are very real. And I should, and I'm glad that you, you mentioned those issues because I was, um, you know, um, uh, a straight guy, you know, coming from uh, essentially a very kind of middle-class background. My father's a dermatologist. Again, he joined the community from the outside. So he got his degrees and everything. Before he, you know, he joined the community, and so we lived a very comfortable life. And to be honest, as I think happens a lot with people who grew up in a kind of middle class or upper class um, uh, existence, you know, they don't necessarily realize how other people are living. And the truth is, it wasn't until my early twenties that I realized that there were really kind of poor people in the Hasidic community. I mean, I knew that there were, you know, panhandlers and and you know people who came to the synagogues and you know, asking for, for charity. But, but you know, those are only kind of the most visible uh, part of a much, much broader phenomenon. And the truth is that I have many classmates whose parents couldn't pay the tuition, and they are essentially coming to the religious school, uh, um, you know, on a, like a scholarship. They were, you know, being subsidized by people, like my father, people who are paying, you know, the quote-unquote full tuition, which is really covering me and a couple of classmates. Um, you know, but I didn't realize that, you know, and then, I remember in my, my early twenties, I was speaking to a friend of mine from the community and he was talking about how like his father was a, a, a ritual slaughterer. So he would slaughter, you know, cows or chickens or something, and maybe did some other kind of religious functions, you know, but they didn't really have much money and, uh, you know, they would struggle to have a nice meal every night. And like, I was just shocked. I, it, it never occurred to me that was not my existence at all. And again, as a straight guy, like. The homophobia in the community—I was aware of it. I had a friend, um, a close friend from yeshiva, who um, ultimately, you know, came out to me after we both had left the community. But I remember, um, you know, something happened in, you know, when we were in yeshiva. Something happened between him and another boy, and it was never clear exactly what it was. Um, you know, maybe he hit on him or something. I'm not sure exactly, but it became this kind of hush-hush thing. But people were all talking about it and kind of pointing fingers, and um, you know, I'm sure it was you know a terrible, terrible experience, you know, for my friend. Um, so, so, and then after I left, I became much more aware of many people who were part of the LGBTQ community who grew up Hasidic and had, you know, some truly horrifying, traumatic experiences. So, so, yes, those things happen, and and I am not trying to 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 diminish the, you know that in any way, and for people who experience that, um, you know, it, that's traumatic, and it's understandable why they might have very, very uh, painful feelings and, and harsh feelings about their, their upbringing, and I, again, I, I totally respect that, and I'm not trying to diminish that or whitewash that in any way. Um, at the same time, uh, I would argue that there's many experiences, you know, so those are really horrifying experiences that's part of what the Hasidic or ultra-orthodox community um you know experiences and there's many other things that people who grew up in that community experience and i think to be honest um when i've spoken to some uh friends of mine who are are lgbtq who grew up in the Hasidic community and we talk about how yes there's uh uh um trauma and um alienation and um you know, just, uh, terrible, uh, pain related to, to that, um, to, you know, to that community being an LGBTQ person at the same time, for people who are LGBTQ who live in the secular world, they also often experience, uh, trauma and rejection and pain. So again, this is not to, to, to justify anything or whitewash anything. It's just to acknowledge the complexity, the complexity within the ultra Orthodox community. And the complexity that exists outside of it,
2: and and then so when you left it, what were your parents like? How did they? Were they, they must have been a bit disappointed, right? A
1: bit disappointed, right? Right? Yeah, that's like the other statement of the century. Um, <laughs> my 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 parents were devastated. My you know when I so there were many stages of leaving. Um, I was leaving on some level for years, just you know reading all these books that we we're talking about, and my own curriculum in yeshiva. Um, But the first kind of public um, uh, act of rebellion was when I shaved my beard. So in the Hasidic community, it's uh, required for men to kind of grow their beard, have a full beard, and not to trim it or shave it or anything. And then eventually, after a very long, painful uh, process of soul searching, I decided to shave my beard. And so that was the first kind of open act of rebellion, where anyone who would look at me, didn't have to talk to me, didn't have to ask me what I thought about, you know, um, uh, uh, Darwin or evolution or whatever, you could just look at my face and you see, okay, something's up with this guy. This guy's not following the wow. rules. He's not doing, you know, the the kind of normal thing that ultra men
2: do. Do you remember the moment? I just want, sorry, I just want to stick with that moment because like, I, I love that idea of you're in this, say in a bathroom and you've got a razor, presumably an electric one. And this is like something that seems so monotonous or, or mundane to most of us. You're shaving your beard. I hate doing it myself. I've got to have done it again. For you, this was this huge thing. What, what were you feeling at the time?
1: Yeah, so it was a very, very huge thing. And, and it was a very painful thing because again, I understood that this was a very public, visible act of, of defiance, of rebellion, you know, and I didn't feel that my heart of hearts that I'm a rebel. I, I felt like I'm just one of the guys. I mean, I went to yeshiva my whole life. I, I lived in this community. I loved, again, I loved my family. I knew that this would hurt my family. This would hurt my parents tremendously. Um, and at the same time, there came a point where I said, well, you know, I, I can't live in the community anymore i'm just i'm too different from from them as i'm too uh concerned about as you mentioned about sort of being an individual being myself being who i am and even though i love my parents ultimately i felt that they can dictate how i should live my life um so yes i ended up shaving my beard and i knew that this would be an upsetting thing to to my parents so I was in, in college at the time, I was living away from home, and I ended up, I was supposed to go that, this was like a Thursday or something, I was supposed to go that Saturday, that Friday to be with my family for the weekend, and I decided instead of just showing up, you know, shaven and, you know, risk a heart attack or something, uh, I, I might as well call them up and just give them a heads up. So I called my mother, and I told her, and I was kind of stammering, and she was like, well, what's going on? And I just said, well, I shaved my beard. And my mother's like, why on earth did you do that? And then just hung up the phone. And I'd never been hung up on before. And it was, it was, I cried. I mean, it was a terrible, terrible experience. And I felt, you know, on the one hand that I needed to do this. And at the same time, I love my parents. At the same time, I'm so angry with them. Why don't they understand that this is who I am and, you know, accept me for who I am. you know, eventually we started having conversations and I was, I would basically, my mother called me back that day and kind of kicked me out of the house. And she's like, okay, you know, fine. You want to do your own thing. You want to live your own life. Okay. Good luck. You know, take, come, come on Sunday when I'm not home, take your stuff out. And like, you're, you're on your own. That's it. If you want to live your own life. Okay. Live your own life. Uh, which is of course not exactly what, what, did, 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 did. So, you know, and I really didn't know you know, what would happen? I mean, again, this is what I was terrified about for years. Would they kick me out? Would they cut me off? What would happen to me? Um, and then, you know, in, in a sense, I was very much on my own with this. I, I found out later that there was an organization in New York called Footsteps uh, that helps people who grew up in the ultra-orthodox community. Javi Weisberger works for them. Uh, they have other, you know, wonderful uh, staff and, and uh, support that you know, tries to help people who are going through this process. I was vaguely aware of them at that time. They were, you know, at a much, um, kind of, um, uh, um, smaller, uh, um, you know, state, the organization. Um, but I was really on my own. I wasn't connected to them. This was just something that I was kind of going through. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. And I was very, I was very scared. I was very sad about this whole thing, but. I just felt I needed to do this. This was not an option. Like, I couldn't keep on living the way I was. I just couldn't continue living as a part of the faceted community. In a sense, I didn't feel like I had a choice. It wasn't like, well, should I do it or not? It was like, either I do it or, like, my life will end. Like, I, I just, I can't keep on living like this. Um, so I did that. And then um, eventually, once I started to talk to my mother again, what the conversation that we had, it kept on going, uh um around and around this basic point. Well if you really loved me, you wouldn't do this. Even if you have ideas, even if you want to do something else, if you really loved your parents, you wouldn't hurt them in this way. And I kept on trying to tell her and then with years of therapy, it became clear in my own mind, you know, well no, mom, I love you deeply, but this is not about you. This is about me. And everyone should have the right to live the, the kind of life that they want to live. And if that means breaking with tradition or doing things differently, so be it. But you can have a tradition or a family structure that says, hey, either you follow every single thing the way we tell you to, or you're on the outs, or you know you're dead to us. that that that's simply. It was unacceptable to me.
2: I think that's a lesson for life because I think even outside of these kinds of communities and daily life, we expect things all the time of other people. We we do guilt them. We do give them guilt, uh, and we you know if they're doing you know they're not going to be in my good books if they've done this or that. And I definitely feel and I've noticed it in myself. I've noticed people doing it to me. I've noticed myself doing it to others. I think it's very human. I definitely felt happier in the last few years just just thinking I'm not going to expect anything of anyone and anything anyone does that's nice or whatever that's a bonus but if you love someone I think it's it's the opposite of what your mum said and I think you probably think this as well if you really love someone you set them free and you just you just relax and you don't have to control, but it comes from fear, doesn't it? It's the fear of needing to control your environment. You want to control other people's environments, so I suppose we should have sympathy for those people as well. Your mom was probably very scared.
1: She was very, very scared, and also in the Hasidic, in any community, you know, there's um, there's a, a lot of pressure to conform. I mean, if you grow up in a very um, uh, 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 socially progressive community, you know, oh, yeah. and suddenly your child turns out to support Trump or um, you know yeah. whatever. Uh, people could be very embarrassed. Say, "Oh my God, what did I do wrong? Where did I fail that child? How could that child have ended up so different from who I am and 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 support um, beliefs or position that are so contrary to mine and so contrary in my view, you know, to what's right, what's correct? You know, how how yeah. could that be? You know, so uh, yeah, and and also, I mean, for any parent, obviously, if you love your children and you you devote your life to them." You have certain uh, dreams, hopes, uh, expectations for how they're going to turn out, and when those um, that vision of our children is uh, violated in some way, uh, it could be extremely painful. You know, I think especially in a community like the ultra orthodox Jewish community, where um, for um, for for you know women being the mother, having children, raising children is really kind of the reason that for being alive, that's what you're there for. You're there to be a mother, to raise the next generation of devout Jews. Um, and to, to fail or to feel that one failed in that kind of primal mission um, must be terribly, terribly painful. Uh, to say nothing of the fact that in a community where there's a, such a high significance placed on conformity, on people, fitting thing with the program looking the same day I mean it was a very big deal uh exactly what kind of haircut you got you needed to have uh kind of very short hair so if people would have hair like yours that would be terrible that what you have in the front what you have going there with kind of yeah. pops up quiff. That, yeah quiff. yes so in in Lubavitch, they call that a chup i have no idea why but that's a chup chups are not allowed you could get kicked out of yeshiva for that that's an absolute no no but I the know. fascinating thing is that uh, so once I was in yeshiva in Chicago and, you know, we would get these very short haircuts and there was actually a guy, one of the kids in yeshiva who would give the a haircut for five bucks or whatever. And we we're supposed to get like a, you know, a number three haircut or something, you know, it was, it's very short. Um, and then on a deer, he said, Hey, um, if you get a zero, I'll give you the haircut for free. So, always being thrifty. I said, sure, let's do that. <laughs> so I came to the yeshiva the next morning with the zero, like, you know, the hair was all gone, except for on the sides, which was the payas, the side locks. So we kept those. But anyway, the rest of the hair was all zero. And my, uh, the rabbi in the yeshiva saw this and he started screaming. He was very, very upset about this. He's like, this is terrible. What are you doing? You know, you're not supposed to do this. And of course, I played dumb. I said, well, what do you mean? We're, we're supposed to have a short haircut. This is a short haircut. Not like that. You're not supposed to have that kind of haircut. You know that you're not supposed to do this. And I got into some kind of trouble. So I just think it's interesting that if you have the hair too long, that's a problem. Uh, but if you have it too short, that could also be a problem, you know? And, and so I think it just highlights that in the Hasidic community, there's a very strong emphasis on uniformity, on conformity, on people kind of following a very rigid um path, and if you go out of that again, you really stick out. you know if you someone went to your school and they had kind of longer hair and someone else you know had their hair shaved their head shaved, you know, maybe they would you know people would notice, but i I, I suspect it would be kind of um you know par for the course, you know they would kind of fit in that this one has long hair, this one has medium, this one has short hair, whatever but in in the Lubavitch community in the Kasidic community you really, really stick out if you deviate even slightly. So I think for, for my parents and for many parents, um, to have their children visibly stick out and and, and seem different um, is, is a very painful thing, a very, very painful thing.
2: Hair's a funny thing, because as you're speaking, I'm thinking about hair. I suppose it's the only thing on the human body that you can really modify quite uh, easily. Uh, obviously you could become more muscular or put on or lose weight and your toenails can grow okay but really we're talking about hair in terms of your image a quick haircut can change so it's interesting that that is the thing I mean I know in North Korea you've got a choice of like four haircuts I think that's right so one of them is like Kim I think most people get the, one of the leaders hair but you can also get like one or two others are possible but anything else you're out so that's an interesting one and I also relate to what you're saying I mean I, I remember obviously having a secular upbringing, but my my parents did go to synagogue two or three times a year, the high holy days, and I remember at like 15 just being like, "I'm not, I'm not going anymore." And the thing is, it broke what well, didn't break a heart. It broke my heart to think, though, of like all the other families there with their kids, and then my mum just sitting there. With, with just like al- alone, because my brother would often, maybe he was also influenced by me or had his own decisions as well. He's a bit younger, so I'm not going, well, he's not going to go as well. And now she's just going to sit there on her own and how sad that is. And to her, it's it's important to me, you know, it's a, the appearances, isn't it? It's difficult, that stuff.
1: It, yes, it is. And I'm reminded, um, so Emile Durkheim is one of the founders of modern sociology. He was a French Jew and he actually came from a long line of rabbis. Uh, in the you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, um, uh, and, um, he, so he had a nephew named Marcel Moose, who's also a very famous sociologist in his own right. And the two of them together are really pi- were pioneers in, in sociology. Anyway, they're both secular Jews. And there's a wonderful letter where, uh, Emil Durkheim begs his, um, uh, his nephew, please, Don't uh, I don't know if it was marry a non-Jewish woman or date a non-Jewish woman or something like that. She's he's like this will break your mother, uh, my sister's heart, you know. And and so please just don't do this. And and I I find it it just tickles me so much because uh, (laughs) here are two of you know some of the greatest minds in modern uh, um, sociology, modern intellectual thought, both very proud um, sons of the third, you know, the French Third Republic. Uh, you know, really secular to their bones. And at the same time, one of them is begging the other, don't make your mother feel bad about this religious stuff. It's breaking her heart. Please just kind of knock it off, you know? And, and I, I very strongly relate to that.
2: (laughs) It's so crazy to think of that. That is, yeah, these, these big, even I know of Emil Durkheim, and I don't know any of this, this stuff. Um, But I remember that from back in the day, the learning stuff. Um, So, you you didn't exactly get shunned and i think that's an important point you make that it it it's not like that always and that's an important point i think around the other sects and cults and communities as well that i've covered people don't always get shunned from jehovah's witnesses or scientology or whatever sometimes it's a lot more complicated than that um, i've heard you talking about you know your family coming for they'll come for dinner now to your house will they
1: well well they'll they'll bring dinner um, they'll, <laughs> yeah. they'll 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 come to visit i mean not often. Again, this is not only related to religion. This is also um, sort of local um, psychology or what have you. So I live in Hoboken, New Jersey. My parents live in Brooklyn. For many people in Brooklyn, in New York in general, but Brooklyn in particular, anything outside of Brooklyn is kind of going to the far reaches of the earth. Um, So the idea of going to New Jersey is like, whoa, whoa. If you live all the way in New Jersey, whoa. Now, mind you, we're literally... The town closest to uh to Manhattan, we are right there. So you just go right past uh Manhattan, and then you'll hit Hoboken. You know, but I think this speaks to a kind of mentality. I mean, people make fun of um you know a lot of um whatever liberal Americans that they think of you know they're bicoastal. They think of uh you know, East Coast and the West Coast of America, and then everything in between is like uh, desert or something. You know, which of course is is not quite correct. Um. You know, but I think for people in Brooklyn, they just think of Hoboken, New Jersey, as being very, very far away. Uh, So I think that that plays a part of it beyond any kind of religious restrictions or whatever. Um, But, but yes, my family um, um, do come and visit us sometimes. But when they come to visit us, uh, if there's a meal involved, they not only bring all the food, which is upsetting but understandable uh, (laughs) from a kind of Orthodox Jewish perspective. Even though we have what we consider a kosher kitchen. Um, but that's not kosher enough for them. So they bring all the food, but they also bring the tablecloth. They also bring all their own, you know, uh, plastic or paperware, um, you know, just to make sure that it's 100% uh, acceptable up to their standard. And this is, you know, upsetting to me. Um, You know, obviously it's something that, you know, makes it feel like there's one more uh, uh, divide between us, you know, but at the same time, I'm just so grateful that I have such a warm and loving relationship with my family and that they would want to come visit me and, uh, and that I would want them to come visit, you know, that, that we genuinely enjoy each other's company. Um, and I should mention again, like, you know, the, the, the specifics matter. So I remember, um, when I was in Yeshiva, I used to call my parents every Thursday night. Um, so the whole time I was reading these non-Jewish books or whatever, uh, secretly, but then, you know, I would call my mother and we'd sit there talking for an hour every Thursday night. And I remember one of my closest friends in Yeshiva, uh, whose name happens to also be Zalman, um, and like mine. And he, he asked me like, what do you talk to your mother about? Like, I love my mother too, but God, what would you talk to? I, I couldn't talk to her for an hour. I couldn't talk to her for 10 minutes, you know? I'm like, I don't know what's your problem. I love my mother. We enjoy talking to each other, you know, and that hasn't changed. Um, so I'm just saying, like, when we think about, well, how do families react? Uh, I think it's worth mentioning that people have different kinds of family dynamics before they leave the community. And, you know, some families are are, are warmer towards each other. Some are less warm. Some families are more uh, dysfunctional for any number of reasons, unrelated to religion, to people's mental health, to whatever it is. You know, so those kinds of dynamics transfer over or bleed into people's relationship with their family after they leave. So again, it's just worth noting when, when we think of any particular individual who grew up in the Cascadic community and then leaves and you say, oh, that person, they have a good relationship, that person, they have a bad relationship. Well, okay, there could be all sorts of dynamics. It's a very complex situation. But one important thing is what did their family dynamic look like before the person left? You know, I think that that definitely plays a role. But there's other factors as well. Sorry, I do want to go back to one point that you mentioned, which is that there is an assumption um, both on the part of the um, outside sort of general population and even among some people in the Hasidic community itself, that once someone leaves the Hasidic community, then they're going to be shunned or sort of completely disconnected from their family. And I do want to highlight this. That um, in my research, in my book, I talk a lot about this, uh, one of the key empirical findings from my research, and I should mention, I interviewed 74 um, men and women from two different Hasidic communities, the Lubavitch community that I was raised in, and the Satmar community, which is the largest and uh, one of the most stringent uh, Hasidic communities uh, in the world. Um, So I interviewed people from both of these communities, and I found that most of the people had at least some kind of relationship with their family, even after they left. And again, there's a spectrum. You know, some people had, um, uh, you know, just an occasional phone call a couple times a year, just touching base. You know, painful, awkward, whatever. Some people would visit their families a few times a year. Again, sort of painful and awkward. And other people, like me, uh, maybe about one third of the of the group that I I interviewed. Uh, had very warm and loving relationships and very positive relationships with their family. So there is a spectrum. I'm not saying that everyone's experience is the same. But again, most people had at least some kind of contact and a significant portion had a very substantial, robust, uh, um, loving relationship with their family. Now, again, I should hasten to add that I'm not saying that even those loving relationships, I'm not saying that they're uncomplicated. They can be very complicated, and there's often what I call a, a, kind, of, um, a, a, a um, kind of code of silence where people, it's an un, unspoken uh, rule that the people who leave the community are not really going to bring up too much about their life outside of it. You know, so let's say they're, you know, dating someone or um, having sex before marriage or eating non-kosher food or whatever it is. That they're doing that would violate the rules and norms of the community, they're often rather quiet about those things. So, for instance, I've initially uh, had a hard time finding people who wanted to talk to me for my study because they were worried about being outed. They were worried that if they were a part of my study, people would find out the details of their non orthodox lifestyle. Even though, again, these were not people who were kind of in the closet, because that's a whole other category of. Uh, they're sometimes called double lifers, people who are living what seems to be an orthodox or ultra-orthodox Jewish life, but then secretly they violate the rules of the community. That's a different population and there's studies about them. But I interviewed people who were out, people who on some uh, or, or, or many significant levels had uh, uh, distanced themselves from their Hasidic upbringing. But even those people were eager to kind of keep quiet about the details of their, you know, their new lifestyle. Um, So I'm not saying that these kinds of relationships that people have with their family are uncomplicated, but they could still be very loving and affirming in some ways. Even though, again, people could argue, well, how loving and affirming could it be if you have to deny who you are? You know, I I understand that and I respect that. You know, that's certainly a very legitimate viewpoint. Um, At the same time, again, I think that many people like me Feel that there's enough uh, uh, love and affirmation uh, from their Hasidic family to make it worthwhile to to maintain this kind of relationship with their family, even if there are sort of painful aspects to it.
2: Could you invite them? I don't know if you're married. Uh, could you invite them if you get married to a wedding?
1: So I am married, uh, um, and I did invite them to the to the wedding. Again, not surprising, it was a very complicated process, very, very complicated because, um, the ultra Orthodox community, the Lubavitch community has many, many specifics about how they do weddings. Uh, so for instance, one, uh, you know, it could seem like a minor detail, but this became a big part of my life for a few months. Um, the Lubavitch community around the world, uh, when they send out invitations for their wedding they used the text of the invitation that the seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe, the last Lubavitcher Rebbe, Benafi Mendel Schneerson, that he used in the 1920s, uh, uh, late 1920s, I believe, in uh, you know Eastern Europe for his wedding. Um, and that text, that exact text, is the text that they use. So, for instance, in that text, it has a time for the wedding. I don't remember what it is. Let's just say 5.30, you know. so they all right. Uh, or many, many people follow this practice. They use that exact text with that exact time, but say their wedding is at 7.30. So they'll have a little asterisk in the text. And then the bottom, it says 7.30, you know, so they're keeping the exact format. Well, I looked over the text and uh, I showed it to my uh, very Jewish, um, but sort of liberal uh, Jewish uh, wife, or fiance at the time who grew up in a very, again, very, very Jewish, but non-Orthodox uh, branch of Judaism. And she happens to have a PhD in Talmud from the Jewish Theological Seminary, which is um, the kind of institution that uh, produces um, uh, uh, one of the, the strands of uh, uh, liberal rabbis in America. And so her Hebrew is and Aramaic is much, much better than mine. And she took one look at this Hebrew text and said, well, We're not using it, you know. We're going to write our own thing. And I'm like, well, honey, it would really be good if we could use this. And she's like, no, like it says all these things that I'm not comfortable with, you know. So we kind of haggled, and then at the end, she kept on reading it over, and she's like, well, there are some really beautiful kind of floral, like a rabbinic, praising uh, that she that she appreciated, and she said, okay, well, well, maybe we'll use some of it. And then she spoke to a few of her academic friends who are, you know, linguists or, you know, scholars of Hebrew. And they, you know, changed some of the words. And anyway, they kept maybe, I don't know, half of it or something, but with slight modifications. And I thought that this was a tremendous uh, um, achievement uh, for, for human civilization, you know, that we took <laughs> this Lubavitch text and we made it acceptable to my non-Orthodox wife uh, with a PhD in Talmud and her non-Orthodox friends with their PhDs in Hebrew. And bible and whatever you know and then i called my mother and that's when you know everything fell apart because my mother was having none of it my mother said absolutely not either you use the entire text the way it is or none of it that this is not you know a pick and choose situation you know and anyway make a long story short at the end we ended up having two invitations because when i told my wife about my fiance about my mother's response she says what are you talking about? We've spent so much time working on it. I'm not going to give up, you know, those paragraphs. Now I like it, you know? So anyway, we ended up having two different invitations. My mother sent invitations to her people, the Lubavitchers, <laughs> and they got the exact Lubavitch text and my people got, you know, a variation of that, you know? And I think that that's uh, kind of indicative of of how our relationship works. That there's a lot of love there, but at the same time, um, you know, there are real differences, not just about you know, texts for, for wedding invitations, but, you know, how we should live our life and how we should do our Judaism, you know, and um, thankfully, because of my family and, and you know, uh, my and my wife's, uh, my children, I have two daughters, and, and my children's willingness to sort of compromise and meet somewhere in the middle, we've managed to maintain a very loving relationship
2: oh well that that is a beautiful thing uh zalman where can people get your work there's your book degrees of separation and then there's, there's your podcast where should they look yeah it?
1: so the best way to do that is to go to my website i have a website with a very creative title it's zalman that's my name uh if you go there you'll find links to uh to the book you can also uh find the first chapter of the book people could read for free uh there's also articles that I've written, they're they're all kind of um, uh, posted there, and I am a podcaster on the New Books Network, and um, there's links to all of the podcasts, uh, all of the interviews I've done with scholars of Judaism, religion, and many many other topics.
2: Thank you, Zalman Newfield, guys. Make sure to go to his website. Just type into Google Zalman Newfield and you'll find his website and there's all sorts of stuff. You'll find a link to his book, Degrees of Separation, Identity Formation While Leaving Ultra-Orthodox Judaism. I'm trying to say things as fast as I can. I don't know why. Sometimes it's just nice to know you can. I can see how people want to become rappers and things like that. It feels good to say words quickly. That's what I think about that. It was fascinating talking to Zalman. Obviously, his views on the Orthodox Jewish community are that there are a lot of stereotypes that that things are... uh, Awful, and you get shunned, and things like that. And he suggests that is not always or not even often the case, but there are. Uh, a lot of problems as there are in many different communities. Have I handled that? Okay, I don't know. I don't want to offend people, but also don't want to let people off too lightly. Very difficult line to straddle. If I'm straddling a line, that's the line I'm straddling. Keep on listening, guys. Uh, There are many more episodes coming up. We've been going for over three years. There are two episodes a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and the Saturday one comes out on patreon.com slash Gold. See you guys soon.